Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, okay. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm the host of this show. My name is Brady Huggett, and the guest today is Pardis Sabeti. She is the head of the Sabeti Lab. She is a co-founder of Sherlock Biosciences, and she's co-author of a book called Outbreak Culture. And I wanted to speak to her for a while. We got our schedules aligned. I went up to Boston. You know, when you when you talk to someone like like Bob Langer, for instance, who's been involved with some 40 biotech companies. It's you, you sort of think, how are you going to fit it all in? You can't you can't go, okay, Bob, now now tell me about starting company number 26, and now tell me about company number 27. It's just not how this is going to work. And you think with someone like Pardis, it would be easier because she's this is the first biotech company that she's been associated with, but that was not the case. Uh, I still felt like I didn't have enough time to get it all in there. I felt like we could have gone on and on, and the more I spoke with her, the more I thought that I was not only learning something about science, but but about about humanity, about what it means to be alive on this planet, about how human beings can survive the things that life hands down to us. And Pardis is definitely a survivor. So what did we talk about? We talked about the Iranian Revolution and how her family came to America. We talked about her love of math. We talked about um, the Ebola crisis of 2014 and 2016. We talked about writing her book. And we talked about the horrific ATV accident that nearly killed her, um, and how she's able to come back from that. And music. We talked about music. She's a great love of music. Uh, let's see. I think that's it. I think you're ready to go. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Pardis Sabeti. Listen up. All right. You ready? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Um, Right, so you know, I did I did research, of course, okay. to try to get ready. And there's a few things I, I usually start with, just sort of like where you were born, right? Okay. And I do know that you were born in Iran, but I don't really know much of the details. Okay, so uh, I was um, was born in Tehran, Iran. Yeah. In uh, in 1975, December 1975. So um, just a little bit before the Iranian Revolution started, and I left Iran at the age of two, nearly three. Right before the Iranian Revolution. So you have you have no memory of it. No. None. Yeah, I mean, I could I could 
you know, I'm, I'm sure. You wish I you could, did, but yeah. Well, no, I'm sure I simulated some memories, but no, I, I, none that I can feel confident are real memories. Yeah. Okay. So then, how, let's see. So then, you know, these questions are more sort of almost for your parents, but but, um, you know, why did they leave? Um, how did they leave? Mm. Uh, I think your father worked for the Shah or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we. Uh, so um, me and my sister and my mom left in October of 78, so before the revolution started. Uh-huh. My dad stayed on and came later, but he saw the writing on the wall and so wanted us out of the country. And um, he was, yeah, he was um, the director of intelligence for an organization called the Savak, which is um, kind of a counterintelligence um, uh, organization uh-huh. of the Shah. So it was definitely time to get out. For him especially, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for him uh, as well. Like he ended up, um, yeah, for, for for everybody essentially. Yeah. So okay, so then he sees the as you said the writing on the wall. This sort of revolution is building, and the revolution is kind of going to overthrow his employer, if if you will, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. sort of like this is the end of a sort of. I mean, you're gonna have to fill me in, but a more open society being replaced by a more um, hardline religious one. Is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so your dad's like, we got to get everybody out of here. Yeah, I mean, again, he was there to fight to the end. I mean, I think that was the thing, which is, you know, it was only, uh, like, I mean, his whole, everything he was doing in, in that position was to try to keep uh, the government stable. Yeah. To keep um, from these sort of terrorist organizations not to take over. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so I think there, it was definitely, you know, with a great deal of disappointment. Uh, my mom talks about, like that moment she'll never forget when the moment when she got on the plane to come to America and without her husband, without her husband, with her children, and just just she's like I, she never cried that hard. Huh. You know, she just knew that stepping on that plane meant she had lost her country. Yeah, and that things would never be the same. Yeah, um, and so uh, yeah, it was it was not something you know. Even in the escape, there was just an incredible amount of um, just. Devastation. Yeah, it wasn't like some joyous leaving behind. It was a. You know, it's like, a we're out yeah. of here. It's yeah. just like what is happening. And yeah. I think I think it was overwhelming. I can only imagine. I mean, it's funny because uh, just thinking about, I don't remember any of it, but I'm sure it was all very traumatic and all very emotional. And and so um, I wish I did. I wish I knew. You know, I'm, I think it probably reverberates through how I live my life. Um, but so in some in some form that you can't recognize, probably. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. yeah, you think about like just all the things kids don't remember that affect them and impact them. But yeah, I mean, I I, I can imagine for my entire family just how overwhelming it was and how for everybody in the country. So you, the sister is is that an older sister? I'm an older sister. Yeah. So she does she she must have more memories of this. She has yeah she has some, but again I, I think they're all very muddied. And and my parents did a really amazing job at making our lives very normal and making it so that um, we don't really remember that turmoil and that we felt like our childhoods were somehow normal. Yeah. Um, so they, they I, I think I, I always find it fascinating just the way that my mother in particular uh, worked so hard to give us like what I, what I call like an enchanted childhood. Um, we had to live with my uncles and my you know, cousins and my grandmother and my grandfather. And it was this chaotic household because we didn't really have anything and yeah. we all had to live together and I had to share a room with five other people. But it was like this like magical adventure. Um, you know, my mom has this kind of, 
She's like color like a Pied Piper of children. She just has a magical way of making everything seem like. This is great. Great, yeah. And, and for some reason, then she decided to, you know, we had birds and cats and dogs. If, if it wasn't enough, right? <laughs> just to I mean, bring them into the house. Yeah. She, she somehow was, there was like a lot of life in the house. Um, and I'm sure chaos. And I and I can, I, there was chaos for sure. Um, but it felt, like I said, just kind of an adventure. Okay, so um, so your mother's sort of like, isn't it amazing that you get to share this room with five people that you love and it's a crazy, wonderful sort of uh, adventure to be doing this? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if she used those words. She just made it feel like it was. Yeah. You know, yeah. it made it feel like this is the way to... She She's just a very, um, like, colorful um, person. Um, so I just, I, in my childhood, I remember climbing trees with my mom. You know, oh, she's, really? She's yeah. kind of an adventurer, you know, or like wrestling with my cousins where my, my mom organized like wrestle matches and I mean uh, and she would have us and she'd just go and get kind of random books from garage sales and like make us teach each other so she'd have my sister like teach me stuff and so she was just always we didn't have a, um, the kind of standard childhood that other people had and we didn't know what all the things what, like there's no sense of oh these are the things one must do to be successful yeah. and yeah. All of those bets were off. I mean, for them, the world was upside down. Yeah. So it, she wasn't trying to get us somewhere. She was just trying to get us to learn and engage and, I think, be curious. And, I, and um, I'm and i grateful for that. It, 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 I, I try to actually instill that like in my, with my Your lab. own family and my own lab. Yeah. yeah just to, to give that sense of, like, it's not about where you're going to be or who you're going to be. It's really just about, like, having fun, being curious. Uh, you know, one of the things I often talk about is so there's a point where I, for a while I was sharing – my sister and I were sharing a room with my grandmother and my aunt, and I just remember that, like, every night my grandmother used to tell us stories in Persian, and they were, like, amazing. And so to me, I mean, sharing a room with all these people is amazing because every night you get stories. It's um, like entertainment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and, like, really kind of a, a different kind of entertainment where that, the storytelling is phenomenal, right, because you, your brain goes to all these places, and, it, and um, so that was, like, a, that was, I would say a lot of my childhood was like that, just magical and enchanting and different. So when, but when you say that you all live together, is that because you came as one or you already had family in the country? No, we came as one. So when, and we didn't have much. So. Oh, wow. So it was your mother, your father, yeah. your grandmother on, on both sides? Uh, your grandparents on both so sides? So they, they lived near... So we all, yes. So we, we, we all came. It was like uncles uh, um, and aunts on both sides, um, grandparents on both sides, cousins, and my mom and my dad. And... Uh, and then dogs and cats and all sorts of things. But, yeah, and at varying times there was different. So it was sort of um, different people were living with us at varying times. And uh, for, like, a lot of it, my grandparents either lived with us or right next door. Uh-huh. Yeah. So do you know um, – I'm just curious, like, how did you make this entry to the United States? Was it as a refugee status or how did you – Yeah, we had refugee status. For everybody. And how... um, I think so. I mean, I think that, like, my – I mean, given your father's position, you could. Yeah. This is easily a political refugee yeah. situation, right? So, yeah. I mean, I, so I actually don't know the full details, but I, yeah, I'm pretty sure we all had refugee status. I, we did for sure. And then you you got uh, housing somehow that could handle you all. We had, a, you know, we brought a little bit of money with us, uh-huh. and we lived like in a townhouse somewhere, you know. So there was just different points. I, some of my, so I should say, uh, my like my. Um, my family were very educated, and uh-huh. um, my uncle studied at Caltech, and the other one studied at Berkeley, and another one, you know. And oh, before? Yeah, before. Oh, okay. So, so they were all ready to go. It I wasn't, see. Um, so they spoke English the whole th- – oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, a lot uh, okay. of them. Yeah, it, so that, that was the thing that was kind of phenomenal about that time, that idea of an open society. Um, the Shah was really progressive, and he it was really important to him 
that um, he got uh, sort of the next generation of Iranians really good training. And so a lot of young Iranians at that time had gone out of country and done uh, their education there. And ah. so, um, and they were back working in, the United, in, in Iran. So yeah. they, they'd gone off, they'd done their college in the United States and come back um, and working in various positions in the government. Um, but so that transition was easier because we were pretty comfortable with English. As the Iranian uh, revolution just sort of continued, your family's all in Florida now. You know, what was the feeling of the family? Like your mother said, she really had lost her homeland. It didn't know if mm-hmm. she'd go back or ever have a chance to go back again. Yeah. I mean, what was that feeling? I mean, I think that the, um, again, I don't completely know because I think they did a really good job of not letting us know the feeling. But from as an adult, sort of what I kind of understand is that there was a lot of chaos and consternation for them and disappointment and still trying to see if there are ways that they could help to get the country back. Right? Yeah. So they, they, they hadn't lost hope in the country. They just knew that you know, there, there was a big change that had come. Um, but at the same time, they kind of um, – I, I've seen a lot of immigrants, the refugees of the Iranian Revolution, who 20 years on, 30 years on are still lamenting what happened and regretting and angry – um, but my parents are pretty amazing about that. They kind of don't look back. They kind of are, they they went forward and just um, were like, we're gonna just. You know, they in that same way of my mom being curious, my dad also is curious. Like he just got really into he he uh, he did not train in the United States like, uh-huh. his, like his brothers had and his his sister had. He he had to learn a lot of that. So he got really into like educating himself all about everything. And he now knows more about U.S. government and. Uh, history and politics and, and than anybody and uh, or tax you know like everything he just he just he I think decided it was a thing where he was gonna have to learn a whole new set of skills yeah. and that activated his brain and he just kind of went with that so this is like he's like that that's the old world this is our new one and now yeah. I have to adjust to this yeah, one yeah he's still engaged with it. he knows you know he's very close to what's going on there and that's never changed but um, but he was you know he's like I, I have this family and I have to take care of his family. And so yeah. he's an incredible sense of responsibility and, uh, and um, generosity. And, and so he's, he's been trying to obviously help our, us, but I've also seen my, my parents, like, uh, while I was here, just help everybody. And, and he, it's, it's kind of funny, just the number of people that, like, they just help. They, they felt like they wanted to help, at, you know, all of their not just family, but friends and even just kind of associates just in every way trying to help people thrive. So I, I think that maybe a way I've articulated is that my parents had recognized that the country Iran, uh, you know, as they know it, was no longer. Yeah. Um, but they never lost that enduring commitment to the idea of it. Yeah. Um, and so I've seen them my entire life also just really be very supportive of um, – Iranians everywhere, you know, per- Persian, people of Persian descent everywhere and supporting them in their lives as immigrants around the world. Um, and then becoming also very passionate Americans, really yeah. connected to the politics here. And um, uh, so they, they just have this kind of feeling of they, they want to somehow be an impact for good in the world. And that's sort of what they've instilled in me. Huh. Well, you're right. Okay. So then let's, so growing up in Florida, mm-hmm. your mother and maybe your father, but you said your mother's really sort of giving you this uh, curiosity about the world, making mm-hmm. everything seem fun and interesting and let's learn. Yeah. How do you begin to think, um, okay, that maybe science is something that interests you? Yeah. Um, well, we had a lot of different kind of fun projects as kids too. We'd go and we'd like 
we, we I spent a lot. Of, I didn't spend I spent a lot of time outside as a kid um, in nature. I yeah. just remember kind of going with my mom and collecting like lake water or, or like this kind of like sewagey water and trying to be like what's let's see what it or we had this like little like kind of bug collection that we had and so um it was just it was much more natural that way we, we um but uh so i just always remember being very um like in love with nature uh-huh. I, I think it came more from that than anything else and then as i was in school i loved a lot of different subjects but the one that was like that is my jam like that is it is math it, just the logic of it and um, just the kind of purity of it and the puzzle solving, it just hit all my buttons. And so I didn't know much. I just knew that, like, I love nature and I loved, like, flowers were my favorite. I, I thought I was going to be a flower shop owner, um, except I didn't like cut flowers. Like, I, I love animals, but I don't like caged animals. I love flowers, but I don't like cut flowers. So uh-huh. it was always, like, a bit of a challenge, but I just uh-huh. wanted to – somebody could give me a job or just hang out with flowers. Right. I would. That was the one I wanted. Um, but uh, um, anyway – that sort of I like nature, and then I just realized I math. like math. But I actually, even going to college, I thought I was going to be a doctor because, as an immigrant, um, there's a little bit of restriction of what you think. So, you become this like we have to be. There is a feeling that you have to have a job that is very functional, uh-huh. um, and uh, and so we kind of. My sister is a lawyer. I'm a doctor. Those were kind of the options we thought we were going to pursue. Yep. Neither of us practice traditional uh, in a traditional way, but. Um, uh, I think I was always doing my training towards being a scientist. I just didn't know that's what I was going to become. Right. So you this is you go to MIT for undergrad, right? Mm-hmm. So you love flowers, you love nature, you love yeah. math, but but you really think, well, that, I mean, I love those things, but the job that I can do, I can't just be a flower person. Yeah. Said, I said I'm going to be a doctor. So you go into undergrad thinking like you're pre-med or something. Yeah. So the story for going to MIT was actually in seventh grade. I was um, uh, – in my math class, uh, my teacher showed the 270 competition, which I think now is the 2700 comp- two, I think 2700 competition, but um, it's the the robot competition that happens oh, yeah. at MIT. Yeah. You know where um, these mechanical engineer students are uh, as part of their training have to build a robot and they compete in a way. Yeah. And I just I, I very distinctly remember her being like just putting in the tape and being like, oh, you should check this out. And the second I saw it, I was like those are my people like there's people who do this somewhere like somewhere there's people who like build robots and like compete on like and i and so it was seventh grade and i knew i was going to mit like oh, it was wow. sort of like one of those things where that's uh, where i was wanted to be I was did you even there. apply anyplace else hi um I, I played early decision to uh mit yeah so that was sort of like i was that was college. it yeah. yeah i applied to a couple other places but i i it was uh that was where i was kind of intent on going i yeah. just wanted to make sure i had Options. Yeah. So if you yeah if you got in, you were definitely going to MIT. Right? Yeah. So you do. You go to MIT. You, mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you really been to Boston or up the East Coast? Or I don't know how much you traveled. I had been to Boston, but never in the winter. So yeah. um, I think that was uh, and I. But I'd been, I'd been cold places before. I, I'd never lived somewhere cold. Yeah. Is that a shock? Yeah. Yeah. Still a shock. I, I still can't believe I'm here. <laughs> Six months of the year, you're like I can't believe I'm, I'm nine in months of the year. Nine I'm months. Still like, right. Yeah. This is uh, um, getting too cold for me. So you get you, you finish your undergrad degree, and mm-hmm. I think you got just tell me where I'm wrong, but I think you got a Rhodes scholarship, yeah, mm-hmm. and to the to you to the UK or yeah. something. But I don't know really what you studied while you were you were there. Yeah, um, I studied. I did a master's in something called human biology, which uh-huh. is sort of a mix between it's like biology, but also anthropology and psychology, a whole like uh, am, uh, collective way of thinking about the human. Uh-huh. Um, and then I ended up doing a PhD in biological anthropology, which is essentially what we now call human genetics. It's basically this, or population genetics. It's a study of human populations using 
uh, DNA. And how did you, when did you decide that, oh, actually, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a researcher, somewhere along that line. It was actually, I mean, not even then. Uh, it was um, it was in medical school. Uh, like, I'd come back to medical school. I was finishing up my Ph.D., and I was kind of starting a postdoc at the same time, um, so kind of continuing doing that research uh, with Eric Lander. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Eric was my undergraduate advisor at MIT, and oh. so... Um, and uh, and then I kind of came back and was like, hey, would you mind if I worked in your lab while I'm doing my med degree? And uh, and then I think there started to realize that actually I like research more than I, I want to do medicine. And did, you didn't finish the medical de- degree, did you? No, I did. Yeah. You did? Oh, I, didn't, I don't think I, I missed that somehow. Oh, yeah. So you yeah. have an MD too? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you finished that mm-hmm. um, and the PhD. You're mm-hmm. probably, I don't know how old you then. You're like maybe 20, 28? Um, I, yeah, I guess I was. I was 31 when I finally finished, but I, I did didn't finish my PhD until I did basically two years of a postdoc. Uh-huh. So when I finished my PhD, I actually then immediately applied for faculty positions. But yeah, you know. Okay, so now what do you think you're going to do? You're like, well, I don't. I guess I'm not going to be a, f- a practicing physician. Well, yeah. So then basically, so I took two extra years in medical school um, because I, in the middle of it, just essentially did a postdoc. So by the time I finished my medical degree. I had already done sort of my pre-training to be a faculty uh-huh. uh, because somewhere in there I realized that's probably what I wanted to do. And so as soon as I graduated from medical school, I applied for faculty positions. Here? Uh, everywhere. Everywhere. Um, and ended up uh, staying at Harvard. And had you published a paper yet? Yes. What yeah. was the paper? Um, well, a number of them, but I think the one that was probably most responsible for me getting faculty positions, or actually I guess at that point I had several of them, but they're all in the same area. They were in... Um, uh, um, studying human adaptation, basically um, uh, developing ways of mining the data from the human genome uh, to find variants that were critical for human survival. Um, and had published an early paper showing how one might do it, then some follow-up papers with new techniques, um, and then had basically... Um, published like a set of variants across the human genome that I thought were important for our survival and for human health. And that's what I basically started my lab pursuing is some of those signals. Okay. So then tell me, take me through sort of setting up the lab. Um, so in setting up the lab, I, um, one part of it was to follow, continue with that work, to really continue with fine-tuning these methods and, and finding out what are all the things that are important for our survival. And then another big part of the lab was... Um, that one of the signals that was most intriguing to me was that um, studying a population from West Africa, the Yoruba, we identified uh, these signals that were linked to um, infection with Lassa virus, which uh-huh. is a deadly hemorrhagic fever virus um, that I hadn't really heard about even in medical school, but um, that was intriguing to me because it seemed like the evidence was suggesting it was a, a huge evolutionary pressure on human populations. And so I wanted to explore that possibility. Um, and it was, you know, it was a signal that was, like, circumstantially linked to it. So it wasn't clear that that was necessarily going to be uh, with follow-up. But it was intriguing enough to, to say, why is there this virus called Lassa virus that might be this huge pressure that's completely transformed human populations, but yet I've never heard about it. And I went into the field. I, I partnered with – I connected with a colleague of mine named Christian Happy, who is a scientist in Nigeria – and we worked together to set up a site to start testing for Lassa virus and studying it. And the more we looked, the more we realized, oh, 
actually this virus is circulating a lot and we don't have, we just, no one's testing for it. So no one knows how many infections there really are. Um, and so that kind of took my research in a completely different direction. So I'm curious about this. So sort of explain this to me. When you say it's giving this evolutionary pressure, meaning that there's this virus around and some people get it and die from it and some don't. Yeah. And for those who don't, then that their genome is then procreated on through the population where the ones who died isn't. So that's what you mean by pressure? It's yeah. sort of... That's right. Yeah. So yeah, the kind of the classic idea of natural selection, which is that in, um, there is these pressures on populations and individuals who carry a trait that is either beneficial to their survival or the reproductive success are more likely to survive, reproduce, and pass that trait on yeah. to their children and their children's children and beyond. Yeah. And so the simple thing that natural selection can do, a certain kind of natural selection, is it can take a new mutation and, and drive it to high prevalence very quickly. And that just leads, leaves behind a very like classic footprint. It's a footprint of a variant that is common in the population, but that the genetic variation around it suggests that it's not been around very long. So it looks like it's gotten to high prevalence too quickly. Uh, to so you see a spike in your, okay. Yeah. But, but were you finding something that says, oh, this, like this allele is giving protection against loss of virus? We were finding something that said this allele is somehow really important. And then there's other papers. Mike Oldstone at Scripps had published a beautiful paper uh, that showed that that gene where that mutation, those mutations were in, um, was critical for entry of Lassa virus. And Lassa virus is named after the city of Lassa, Nigeria, uh-huh. um, where the virus was first discovered. And so I remember it's like all those like clues you put together, and you're like, wait a second, there's this gene that's under strong selection in the Yoruban population of Nigeria. Um, it's in a, you know, and this gene is critical for entry of Lassa virus, a virus that is deadly and is named after a city in Nigeria. Could it be that this variant has become so common because it somehow changes the ability to be infected with loss of virus. Okay, so after you started discovering this, what what were you thinking? You're like, well, okay, we can find a way to treat it or diagnose it or... Well, we, we, even, we hadn't even gotten to that point yet. It's like, is this variant that I'm finding to be, you know... So, like, uh, the type of... Uh, tests that I can do, I can find hundreds of these things, uh-huh. but they're all clues. We don't know what is, you know, what's driving it. We don't know how it's being driven. We don't know exactly which mutations even doing it. So, it, it gets us to the point to ask the question: Is this particular variant somehow influenced your susceptibility yeah. to loss of virus? So we're in the middle. We're still doing that study. It's not easy to do that study because it's a deadly virus in a remote region. Yeah, it's an RNA virus. It's really hard to like even pick up um, and to uh, work with. And so um, we're just asking that question: uh, Is um, is it that people who carry this variant are preliminary data? Are they protected from Lassa? And our preliminary data suggests that it is, but we need a lot more data to to prove that out. Yeah. So then you're you're sort of looking at this at the time, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know. So as I mentioned, I read your your book, mm-hmm. Outbreak Culture, and you were pretty heavily involved in the last, not the current, mm-hmm. but the one like 2014 Ebola outbreak. Yeah. How did, were you drawn into that because of this research, or did you offer yourself up because of your research? No. Um, so, uh, so basically, in, when I started my lab, yeah, we ended up kind of heavily starting to work on Lassa virus and in the field, and I just started to learn a whole set of skills I you know never learned before about how to do field work on a deadly virus in a remote region of the world, and um, and Lassa virus is you know prevalent in Nigeria. It's also prevalent in Sierra Leone, uh-huh. and so. I partnered with colleagues there um, 
uh, who, um, a particular research group from Tulane that, um, that works on loss of virus in Sierra Leone, and we both started working together uh, in the two countries. And so for this long period, for about five years before the 2014 Ebola outbreak, we were working in Sierra Leone and in Nigeria studying loss of virus. And while we were doing it, um, you know, there's certain kinds of observations you can only make in the field. And the more we started being able to allow the hospitals to do diagnosis for LASA, the more we recognized that there were a lot of cases that were going undetected, right? So no one was ever picking up. And so there's a lot of people that come in that look like they may have malaria or typhoid or something else, but when we do the test, they have LASA. And so over time, we started saying, hey, you know, is this actually an emergent disease? Are, are any of these diseases like emergent diseases, or is it just that we're not detecting them and that this is just emergent diagnosis of a disease that's already circulating? Um, right? So like, as, as soon as we started working on LASA in Nigeria, the next year there was like a huge uptick in LASA cases. I don't necessarily think there was a huge uptick in LASA cases. I think there was a huge uptick in, in testing in LASA. Yeah, yeah. And so that was basically – so based on that, we um, wrote and, and received grants to build up a program – to do surveillance, to do better surveillance. So that's what we were doing in Sierra Leone and in Nigeria. Is we were studying Lassa virus and we were studying other things, like Ebola was one of the things we proposed were, were circulating undetected um, in those countries. Uh, so we published that paper two years, literally with a giant picture of Ebola virus drawn into like uh, uh, in sort of into the forest to show that it's like here, like a yeah. crop circle kind of a yeah, feel yeah, yeah. That, that, um, that these viruses are circulating and we're not picking them up. And then they really were. They were. Yeah. Oh, so you're, you were literally, you were already working in that area. You were in the field, as you said, yeah. and then Ebola spiked. And you said, well, we're right in the middle of this anyway, so now let's start. It, it wasn't even, yeah, we, there's nothing we could do. It came to us, yeah. and we had to do something about it because uh, our people were at risk. When you when you say that you were learning a lot of skills you didn't have before, like yeah. how to do research in the field, what, 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 are, those, what are those skills? What were you learning? Like, uh, how, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, I think you really learn a lot about um, uh, biosafety. Yeah. You learn a lot about ethical compliance, and you learn a lot about cooperation and communication and partnership, and you learn how to deal with a – and we had to – a lot of the protocols that we used, we had to develop from scratch, right, figure out how to safely um, collect samples from these patients, deactivate, sort of chemically deactivate the virus – in a way that still preserves their genetic information so we could read it out. Um, so all of these, the, all, there was like basically, I, I mean, I had, the good news is that this other part of my research was just taking publicly available data and developing cool math that yeah. would be able to pick up signals yeah. and that I could do in my basement, yeah. you know, and, uh, and that basically as an early faculty, all of my early papers were just that. It was like based on literally just math um, and sometimes math looking at data. Uh, meanwhile, there was this huge investment that I put in Africa and in these projects that were not doing anything you know, from a publication standpoint. I was just learning. Um, and I, wasn't, I didn't have necessarily an expectation that anything would come of it anytime soon. I, I knew that it was important, more important. I, was, I, I felt so um, much satisfaction from even the small gains that we were having on a public health standpoint just in the hospitals we were working in, right? Just putting diagnostics on ground, allowing yeah. people for the first time to know if they have lots of, um, to test contacts, all of that was really powerful, and it wasn't really towards any publication or anything at the time. It was just this learning process. 
so as that's ongoing, I mean, how much you said you're doing, you know, a lot of this, like you could do this in your basement as long as you do the math, but how much time were you spending in Africa? Were you? Yeah. Well, my lab was spending a lot of time and I was doing like long visits um, multiple times a year. Yeah. Back and forth. Okay. So then this Ebola outbreak happens. And, uh, I mean, I remember it happening, but in, honestly, in preparation for this interview, I started reading, like, the New Yorker article. It was really, really good. And, mm-hmm. of course, I read your book, and yeah. uh, that brought it all back, right? Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, yeah. And it's just such a – you know, I remember – most of the things I remember are has someone arrived into Texas with Ebola virus and all of our local papers and national papers being like Ebola, Ebola, Ebola. But when you read what was happening in Africa, I mean, it's terrifying. And, and by that, I, I, it's not even – although the virus is terrifying, it's the inability to – uh, adequately protect the workers from it. That is so terrifying. I mean, um, Khan's death was, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have worked over and over and over on saving people and then see, you know, you watch the symptoms run through these people and they die and then begin to get them yourselves must be the worst feeling in the world, right? And I thought, man, we, uh, like, how do you get a system in place where that sort of thing doesn't happen, where people aren't scared to treat those who are sick? Yeah. Well, um, frontline healthcare workers are always going to be the ones at most risk. I mean, they just are. And so uh, that's something you'll always have. Um, and that's but, why I find but so, It's like when, when we know if, if that is a given, yeah. why do they take the jobs, right? I mean, how do we keep getting I'm, people to take these jobs yeah. if they're. Well, I mean, it, because there's just tremendous people who really care more about you know, the impact they can have in the world than, than on their own individual safety. That said, um, there's a lot we can do to make these jobs more desirable. Yeah. And the first thing is not to ostracize the people who do it um, to, uh, after they pass away to make sure that their families are taken care of. I mean, it, it, the amazing thing is it's shocking they still do it given how we treat them um, now. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that we see now with the 9-11 firefighters and the fact that they can't get health care. I mean, what yeah. are we doing? How? Yeah. How do you get anybody to do anything if you they, they, if they realize that once they finish this job and they do this heroic thing and they help their fellow man that then they get abandoned? So um, there are lots we can do to make it you know to put them first and say thank you for doing this job um, and uh, and you know um, and what can we do to help serve you? Um, I think it's, you have to help the helpers and so I think those are the kinds of things we need to do. And then on a from a scientific public health standpoint. Um, the thing is, you know, Dr. Khan and his colleagues had treated, you know, tons of Lassa cases over the many years mm-hmm. safely and securely. They even were able to treat a large number of Ebola cases early in the outbreak very, very safely. The problem for them is that they became the only place that was doing treatment at a period of t- like in this terrible, like perfect storm where all the other international organizations were already maxed out in Liberia and Guinea, and nobody was coming to Sierra Leone, and then all the cases were in Sierra Leone. And so they were kind of alone for a while, getting, you know, first, you know, one, then two, then 10, then, you know, 80 and, and over 100 cases of Ebola coming. So you can be prepared, and, and they were prepared, and they were an excellent um, at doing what they were doing. For you know one or even yeah. twenty cases, yeah. but they couldn't handle the the load that they had on their own in that way. So they they ran out of. We we were actually my colleague from Tulane and I. Our labs were essentially raiding our coffers using anything that was discretionary that we could spend there ourselves trying to get uh, sort of 
personal protective gear and other kinds of things, supplies to them. And, you know, so were other colleagues there, but it just wasn't enough. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, you couldn't tell them, okay, you don't have it now, so stop. There's more people coming in. And so I think that's the thing, which is um, there's more we can do to make sure it's safe for them. And it's more we can do to say, even if it's not safe, you'll be cared for and your, your um, sacrifice will be recognized. Do do you, well, two things. So like, as I was reading both your book and, and that article, it's sort of like, you know, these people are trying desperately to treat these dying patients and, you know, they're like on carts in the hallway and there's just blood and feces everywhere, right? And the wheels are coming off. And I was like, why is anybody still coming in? Why are the nurses still coming in? I couldn't, I almost couldn't believe it, right? I mean, I know that there's this sort of, it seems very tenuous to say, well, we're just counting on uh, the goodness of, of certain humans to come keep doing this, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe that not only Dr. Khan kept it up, but all the other workers who were there, and some, some weren't coming in. I mean, that, yeah. was, that was true too. And that seemed like, honestly, the rational decision to make <laughs> at that point. But yeah, I just was like, wow. Um, and, it, and, and then I got the feeling, was like, okay, as soon as the, that outbreak began to die down, one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You know, the cameras looked elsewhere, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel like we're particularly prepared for... Well, no, no, as you know, because as your book said, they have built a lot of facilities in the end, mm-hmm. right? Um, but do you feel like it's better prepared? Is anyone better prepared for another outbreak? We are better prepared, but we're not. But we're not prepared. You know, we're we're better than we were. Yeah. But we're not where we need to be. Not not even close. That's what I would probably say. And and it, and it's showing, um, in what's going on in the DRC right now. Uh, and you know, every every outbreak has its own complications, and so you'll never be completely ready for whatever the virus is, wherever it is. But uh, but there's a lot we're still not, you know, there's a lot we could be doing that we're not doing. Yeah, I just, we have a Nature Has a reporter, Amy Maxman, who covers mm-hmm. this for us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she, she was... Amy a lot of... Yeah, yeah. She, she was saying, she was like, you know, this is not, it isn't being covered adequately. There aren't enough people there. Yeah. And it's sort of being, not hushed up, but just not... The, the proper light isn't being thrown on it. And it's mm-hmm. starting to get a little bit more now. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's it's sort of like oh, it's happening kind of again, right? There's an outbreak. The world isn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. 
because as soon as it goes away, we're like, well, it's not really. And when I say we, I mean like the United States. It's not really on our shores, yeah. and you know, we're not going to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, so yeah. then, but I mean, so I guess that's why you wrote the book, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wrote the book to just get out of uh, to basically reflect on what I was experiencing and as a way to articulate like the what I was seeing. So, yeah, so I wrote a book after the Ebola outbreak called Outbreak Culture with Lara Salahi, who's um, a tremendous journalist who I came to know during the, during the outbreak through something called Ebola Deeply, an initiative to try to really get thoughtful, long-term, continuous coverage of the outbreak. Um, and Lara and I really, you know, gelled and started to see together what the issues were with how um, – you know, what was going on. And I was sort of reflecting with her about what I was experiencing, what I, what I kind of came to describe as outbreak culture, which is this kind of toxic, suspicious, paranoid, dog-eat-dog uh, -dog culture that emerges during an outbreak. And, and, and just why not just me, but most of my colleagues would say things like, they spent more time fighting political battles than they did doing the science or fighting the virus, or that they're more worried about the virus than they were, sorry, they're more worried about their colleagues than they were about the virus, you know, around, uh, around political backstabbing than they were. That, that was, they, you know, like I, I remember when I started working on it, I was at a meeting with a lot of people who are in biodefense were there, and they were talking about past experiences during swine flu or SARS or, you know, and beyond, and they were saying they're describing it as the most stressful time of their lives, but none of those stresses were being described as related to the virus. It was about politics, everything around it. Yeah, yeah. And and then that, and then I started seeing it firsthand. For so I thought, for first I was like, what? You know. And then I started seeing it firsthand for myself that I spent most of my time fighting political battles, and 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 so I tried to kind of distill that, and and Lara and I kind of worked together to distill that and to get the sense that. Um, I, I didn't want to blame any one person because it's not about a person. It's about an environment. It's about a crucible that gets formed. It's, it's the crucible of just the standard kind of human challenges of working with each other and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the standard sort of corruption or bad behavior and all that kind of stuff that just exists, but then throw on top of it an insidious, de lethal threat yeah, yeah. Um, that weaponizes your neighbor against you in a way, you know, and um, and just leads everybody to feel like a heightened sense of paranoia and a heightened sense of, you know, suspicious, suspicion and kind of um, selfishness in a lot of ways. And then also put on top of that for the kind of responders uh, that there are a lot of incentives that can become very perverse, uh, that the more people are dying from an outbreak, the more money you might get, the more yeah. credit you might get. And yeah. so um, it's sort of how to contend with people who are unconsciously being influenced by that and other people who are consciously being influenced by that. It's like those those um, the first things you described the sort of chaos around. It's it's really easy to be big and mm -hmm. giving when things are going great, but when you're honestly feel like you might get a virus and die, you're going to get small, right? Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen to humans. That's probably very difficult to change. So well, again, not everybody. Some people get very big, you know. And some I, some yeah. do, but so, I, I mean, yeah. I can understand. But you can see that a lot of people yeah. do also get small. Yeah, yeah and I, and I understand that because they're terrified, right? Yeah. I, I get that. But what we have to do is sort of tackle this government level. Corruption, mm -hmm. collaborate better, mm -hmm. be better prepared. Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is considering like the you know trillion dollar defense budget that we have, yeah, yeah. and that ultimately the wars of the future are going to be like bio warfare is much more powerful than a lot of the warfare we have. Yeah. And so we pay 
spend hundreds of millions of dollars on one plane that often doesn't work. Um, I mean, that to me is crazy. The yeah. fact is, even a percent of the defense budget going towards infectious disease uh, can do a tremendous amount. And even if you don't, and the thing that's amazing about it is that, like, what you have to do to solve outbreaks is what you have to do to solve the common cold that goes around every winter. And so it's like, it's kind of a no-brainer that you could actually create a system that would just help, you know, just common you know, workplace uh, health and, and productivity and all of that, but that would also then stave off a massive, you know, global uh, existential threat. Yeah. So um, I, it's, it's shocking to me that we spend so little of our defense budget on infectious disease. And I, I mean, if there's one thing I could, you know, push for would be that. That's the take-home message. Yeah. 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 And this last outbreak in the 2014 yeah. that you were, you were part of, uh, you know, there was really, the, the ZMAP was used. It was not even approved yet. They were yeah. just like first time in man. And it did save some people for sure. Mm-hmm. And that was looking like that was going to be sort of the, the um, standard of care almost. Mm-hmm. But they just did a trial. Regeneron had a drug in with two others in ZMAP. I can't mm-hmm. remember what the other two were. And they stopped the trial early because Regeneron's drug, which is experimental. Yeah outperformed. And they're saying, look, it's possible to say now that if someone comes in and they have Ebola, we have a cure for yeah. you. And that seemed, you know, like we said, there's plenty of other yeah. infectious diseases, but that would be huge. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, the, the interesting thing about Ebola is that it's um, it's something I think we, that it could be treatable and it could be vaccine preventable. I mean, it is, it's a virus that's not as complicated as flu or HIV or some of these other ones. I mean, it is um, the vaccines that they, you know, the first vaccine they tried, Merck's um, uh, VSV uh, vaccine was uh-huh. incredibly effective. It was already over 75% effective. I think, in, you know, more recently in the studies are showing over, I think, even 97% effective. So the vaccines are, you know, very effective, and there's a number of different vaccines. Johnson & Johnson has one. Sabin Institute has one. That was the GSK one. There's tons of activity there. From the, the, the fact of the matter is it's like ZMAP was a very simple uh, antibody approach, and uh, there were reasons why we knew that um, it, it wasn't going to be the end of the line because it was sort of simple enough that uh, resistance could emerge and other issues could uh-huh. emerge. Um, but that the type of technology they're using, develop, using antibodies, is incredibly powerful. And um, and that virus isn't changing so quickly that we wouldn't be able to. I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, I said, unlike like some other viruses, it actually is it's very potential. So it's really exciting about the Regeneron drug, um, but I'm not surprised that there, there, there will be things that might be 100% effective. Um, so w- what's the problem with vaccinating just because of the obvious infrastructure problems in getting the vaccine or convincing people to take it in areas where Ebola is prevalent? Well, I mean, you know, the thing was during the Ebola, the original Ebola, sorry, the West African Ebola outbreak, yeah. there were vaccines that were ha- had been in development that could have been tested at that point. And the big thing was getting the international community on board to yeah. do that testing. You know, now everybody is... You know, they, with some time and reflection, they realize, no, we have to do testing of vaccines in the middle of an outbreak scenario. And, I, you know, thousands of people have been vaccinated, and that's how we're getting these really great efficacy results. Um, and so, uh, no, actually, I mean, they're doing these ring vaccinations, which means if, a, you know, for, they, for all frontline healthcare workers and yep. then indiv- you know, all voluntary, but, you know, most frontline healthcare workers, and then if somebody's infected, everybody around them. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, that works really, really well. And I think now it's about trying to get it even a larger, so the WHO and others are thinking about this, like, larger vaccination program. Um, it's expensive. It, you know, it's, it's really challenging. It's really expensive. Um, they needed that early data to feel comfortable that this is the way to go. Yeah. And, yes, there's obviously trust issues. It's a population that's burning down, um, you know, treatment centers. 
Uh, they're not necessarily going to be lining up to be stuck with yeah, something. Yeah, that they don't know form. by foreigners. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. okay. I this I could talk about this all day, but I'm okay. going to move on. So I, I want to talk about, well, first off, tell me, um, how did you start your band? Okay. Yeah. Um, how did I start my band? Uh, so when I was a graduate student at Oxford, um, uh, I... Uh, it's kind of this funny place where a lot of people who go there applied for some scholarship and and went and weren't sure exactly what they're doing or why they're there. And so they're kind of finding themselves. Uh, Yeah, I remember like a friend of mine sat there and we're like, what are we doing? We're just, (laughs) why why are we here? And, uh, but it it, it ends up being a really fun time for self-exploration and and thinking about new things. And I had two, so while I was a grad student at Oxford, I had two friends, um, Taylor and Bruce, American friends who uh, the three of us loved music. Uh-huh. We went to like, and and England is an amazing place to love music. There's so many concerts. So we were going to concerts all the time. And then we'd hang out together, the three of us, and they would, you know, bring out their guitars and noodle on it and then talk about the band that they would have. So they f- basically fantasy banded. Yeah. There was a lot of fantasy banding that was happening. And I just remember one night, you know, right before Christmas, my first year there, I was just like, why do you guys do this all the time? Why do you fantasy band? Like, why don't you just start a band? I think you guys want to be in a band. Um, and they were like, well, I mean, at the very least, we need a rhythm section, which I didn't even know what that was. Even though I go to all these concerts, I guess I wasn't paying much attention. <laughs> and I was like, what does that entail? And they said, well, at the least, we'd need a bassist. And I was like, well, what is that? And like, I'll go get one. Let's do this. And so the next day, Bruce and I went and got a, I got a bass. And we started... A band, and I've never looked back. So you started playing bass, mm-hmm. and you, but you also said, "I will sing in this band." No, no, I didn't sing in that band. I, I, I had one song. I, I did some backup singing. I was, I'm more of a backup singer than a real singer, and uh, and uh, and then I there was like one song that I ended up doing. But I was no, I was just a bass player. But when so when you came back from the UK, they they also returned. Were they from the Boston area? Yeah, they we we were a short lived band because they were leaving even before I left. Um, and I I just. We started there. We were we were like we went all in. It was basically we actually they were only there for one year that I was there, and so we had like another six months left. And in that six months, we like performed everywhere, you know, in our in our local like pub, um, college pub, and uh, you know, in our in our dormitory. We just we just perform in our friend's house. Like we just we did it all. I think they they had this one year before they were leaving, and and they got out like every band fantasy they had. We had. We were called 1001 Moose. We uh, we had the Moose Heads, which were our fans, which were our friends. I mean, we made these dumb videos. It was just, it was just, we did everything we were going to do. Yeah. And you know, and that was sort of like, for them, I think it. And I just kind of kept going. But so, but then you formed another band. I formed multiple other bands. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I just kind of kept going. And then when I came, but but I so I kept playing music in Oxford. And when I came back to medical school, I um, joined a band, and that's kind of the band I've been in. Thousand since. Days. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. But you, you do sing for that, and you write songs for that band. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So that's sort of the way that you um, projecting this. I don't know. Blow off steam when you get out of the lab, or is it another outlet for you? Or, or yeah, what? it's. I mean, you know. So I think that. Um, yeah, it's 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 how I express myself, and um, and uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's how I um, communicate things in my life and or in other people's lives. Um, yeah, it's how I kind of just uh, yeah. I think I would say express myself. Yeah. So there's, I mean, if you want to be a great researcher, right, you need to be able to think creatively about problems or bring new um, viewpoints. Mm-hmm. But also, obviously, being in a band is a creative outlet. I mean, do you feel like? in one way you're more creative than the other? Like, is one a better, a better creative expression for you than the other? Science versus uh, Oh, I mean, I think band. that they're both... I think, you know, I, I often say that that 
you know, they're, they're both creative and they're both rigorous. Um, and a lot of people underestimate the creativity you need in science and the rigor you need in, in music. a band. Yeah. Yeah. But you need both. Um, and you need to basically stimulate, uh, stimulate and have a lot of ideas and go in a lot of different directions. And then you need to kind of come up with a vision and then you need to do a lot of very careful, rigorous work to bring that vision to reality. So, um, I think they both require both. And you're going to keep the band going. You I just, mean, you know, by keep the band going, it's, what does that mean? Like I you keep know, writing I, music. I, well, I'll keep writing music because that's how I, yeah, write music. And and I and I have a writing partner, Bob Katsikas, who's awesome, and we we really you know gel well together in writing, and it's so it's very easy for us to do. But I mean, in varying times of my life, I'm not writing at all. Yeah. Um. It's it, it's it's in the point where it's sort of in the background right now. But there will be times where a song will just burst out of me, and uh, we were just in the studio the other day, and uh, and we're going to do a bunch of songs because we're like, oh, something, you know. So it's this fun thing where it's like whenever I don't, I'm not trying to, I don't have some sort of like a, it's, uh, you're not writing a song a day. I don't have an NIH grant. There's nobody waiting for. It. I don't have yeah. milestones or Gantt charts. Or I don't have. Anything, I don't have anything I need to accomplish with it. But um, but I can always do it whenever yeah. I want to. And so that part's really great. Okay, so I want to ask about Sherlock. Okay, All right. So tell me. I mean, this is, there's like nine co-founders or something in this yeah. company. So how did it come to be? Um, so yeah. So um, for a long time, I've been I've been studying uh, viruses. Yeah. And really excited about viruses and building new technologies to study them. At the same time, I'm in this amazing institute with, that has just uh, the Broad Institute that has just an extraordinary number of innovative researchers. Uh, you know, Feng Zhang, Jim Collins, um, just across the board, Dev Hung, in infectious disease and beyond. And um, uh, and Feng and Jim had been working on a project uh, using CRISPR, kind of the new technology that's changing a lot of human health and uh, allowing us to do gene editing for the first time. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting about CRISPR is that it, it, it's essentially a technology that was co-opted from um, nature, uh, and its its function in nature is to be a bacteria's immune system against viruses. Mm-hmm. So it essentially is a way that bacteria um, incorporate a sequence from a virus in its own DNA, and then then spits that out and uses that to circulate and detect viruses. And so it's uh, you know, so essentially it's 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 designed to detect and destroy viruses, and um, and so um, there's a particular type of CRISPR enzyme it's called a Cas enzyme yeah. that is very um, uh, good at, at detecting RNA and it has a special feature to it that once it detects that RNA it sort of cuts other things around it and all of that could be co-opted very, very well to develop a diagnostic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Fung's group had really been working on that, and then they partnered with Jim's group to make it more powerful. And then they kind of approached us to say, can we be using this on viruses? And so together we worked on uh, applying it to Zika virus. Uh. Um, and then my group got really ex- invested in it and kind of kept going further. And we we were really interested in the idea of how can we make it as deployable as possible. And so we developed some technology to make it, you know, be able to work without doing any pre-processing so that you just take a sample and you could even take a sample of saliva or urine or blood spots or something that could be very simple and non-invasive and without any processing get it to work on the system because we wanted to basically a diagnostic that you could do at home or in the most remote setting in the world oh you can so you could do this in the field that that yes, that's the goal. The that that is yeah, that is something we're already doing in the field. Oh, okay. Um, but but even getting it like further further down the field where it's like in a hut somewhere. In the yeah. Nowhere. Yeah. So how involved with Sherlock are you on a day to day basis? 
I am uh, on a day-to-day basis, not really. Yeah. Um, and it, it, part of it is because, um, uh, well, they're just launching, and I'm doing my research. And, yeah. I, and you know, as the comp- I'm very um, concerned about conflicts of interest, and I don't, you know, so I, I had a number of projects that were already ongoing that are kind of related to the work, and I don't want to be influenced by anything the company's doing. Or to me, the most important thing is getting the work out there. Yeah. Um, and I came to the idea of a company very kind of unwillingly in a way because sort of it wasn't – that's not my primary goal is to do things within business. But um, but right, but then the more, you know, as I've kind of gone through, you realize that the way you can have impact is um, through building companies because companies can scale yeah. in a way that my lab can't. Yeah. And so I'm really excited about it. But at the same time, I try to – I keep it very separate. Um, I still engage a lot of other diagnostic companies, you know, let them know that I have this other thing they're interested in. But the type of work I do can enable any diagnostic technology. Yeah. Um, and so I want to be able to kind of keep open to that. And so – and I have a few other projects that I'm still working on in this space. And so I'm trying to keep that partitioned in a, in a good way. Um, but I have a very specific, discrete interactions with the company um, that, I, that I can separate from. Yeah what I'm doing in the lab. Okay. So I want to ask you this too. Um, you, so this is like 2015, you're in a car accident, mm-hmm. like a terrible car accident. You were, I think, um, you were at a conference or something in Colorado. Is that right? In, uh, in Montana. Montana. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Um, just to sort of take me through what happened there, or at least as much as you remember of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was at a conference in Montana. It was a big tech conference. I had just given a, Eric Lander and I had just given a big presentation uh, and at the midday, there's a kind of thing where there's uh, activities you're supposed to do and engage and interact with your other colleagues. So it's a lot of it. It's around, um, like, getting to know people so yeah. that the conversations are much more stimulated. And um, and I was convinced by another one of the uh, – a group of the other conference goers to go on just a tour of this area. I was a passenger on a convoy of – I hate saying the word because I, I've never done one before or since, and I actually that was that was my only hesitation about doing this was it was an ATV, but it was a simple drive. I, I just want to I always have to have a tick to be like, oh, I, yeah, I'm I'm a very risk averse person actually. I'm like yeah. the person that goes like doesn't do ro- like roller coasters or doesn't I do like all the easy stuff, um, but uh, but yeah, so it was just a simple drive, but it was there was a switchback and the driver went off a cliff and uh, and uh, the vehicle flipped and I got catapulted onto boulders. So when we say ATV, you mean like a three-wheeler or a four-wheeler? God, I mean, uh, it was like a, a four-wheeler, I think. Yeah, with the or, open, you know, this oh, is yeah. like, this is for going through the forest and it has an yeah, open... Yeah, but we were literally just on a drive. I mean, yeah. and I said, all these things I checked out. I, I mean, yeah, I, no, no. I was so, I think, uh, yeah, I was very cautious of that, but yes, it was, it might have been a three-wheeler. It was, it was, it was like one of these two-seaters. Yeah. Um, so one person in the front, one in the back, and you're just driving, and we were just driving along the road. Yeah, and it, it, it flipped over. It, it went first one off a cliff, and then and then it basically was careening down a cliffside, and then flipped, and then I got shot out on the boulders, like on a kind of a, on a really steep angle. So there were two. There were he was there was a driver. Yeah, is he all right? He's okay, and and the the way I kind of describe it is generally the drivers are usually okay in incidences like this, which you I've I came to learn when I was in the hospital ward and everybody was a passenger is just the way it works is the passenger is the one that's getting the information late is not in any control you know is just sort of like um, yeah oh my god okay so, so then just, you're yeah. you're shot out into boulders as mm-hmm. you said I mean to, uh, I, so there's a convoy of these of people doing yeah. this they all obviously saw stopped and yeah. And began to try to help you, but mm-hmm. this sounds quite serious. It was very serious. So yeah, later uh, I think 
So the accident happens. Yeah. I am. It takes some hours to extract me because I'm on a cliffside, and I'm pretty mobile, and they're worried that I'm going to bleed out and die. And so extract I get, you via medevac. I got yeah. I got helicoptered out to oh my god Bozeman, Montana, where I was stabilized, and then put on an airplane to uh, Harborview Hospital in Washington because that was basically the injury was a ten out of ten injury. Uh, you know, and um, what does that mean? Uh, basically, so, like so, on a scale of bad injuries. Yeah, well, yeah. 10? So, Doctor Fierzabadi, who did the surgery later, I said sort of like, "How bad is my injury?" Because I can't find anybody else who has my kind of injuries, and I'm trying to meet and know as many people yeah. as I can to like learn. And he was like, "Oh no, you're like ten out of ten. Like most people, you know, it, it's the kind of injury where." Uh, Multiple doctors have told me it's a sort of a 5% chance of survival. Oh, my God. Um, so I had I shattered my entire pelvis and both my knees and had a brain injury. And I um, I still have six plates and 30 giant rods that whole stitch my body together. From the waist down? Like these, but, yeah, the like legs? my waist down is just I'm, I'm like a half metal. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I had basically four full days of surgery that were about 30 hours of surgery. Oh, my God. Liz, I have to t- say, like, does anybody – I mean, I do, would never have guessed that. You're walking around. We're having. I mean, you oh, don't yeah. limp or anything. I, I, I mean, work very hard at it. I oh work my god! Every day, every so that was four years ago, and I every single day I have to work at it. You still do rehab and stuff for it. Mm-hmm. Oh my! So mm-hmm. what, I, like uh, when someone says the pelvis is shattered, does yeah. that mean? I mean, in my like, mind, it seems like like, like fifty. Pe- what? Yeah. How do they fix that? Uh, I mean, through you, if you look at it, I look like a chain link fence. I mean, it's they a, just stitch it all back together. They stitch it back together. I think some pieces go out. You know, they just do as much, and, and then the body kind of puts itself back together. Wow. I think the reason why the survival rate is so low is that it's just it's pretty improbable that you um, don't bleed out, right? That Before you, you have a chance to get fixed. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. So, okay. So, thank God for the medevac or you would have yeah. bled out, right? If you'd, if you'd been by yourself, you would have died. Funny thing is, I don't think so. So, both my dad and I, we both were in injuries where my dad was actually was driving on a highway, on like an interstate highway, where another car flew across um, like the the median, uh-huh. and so it's a head-on collision of two people going about seventy miles an hour. And if you see the car, it's like literally like a mumble. And he ended up basically he has he had like a ten out of ten injury as well, um, and shattered his legs and his and his arm and all, everything. Uh, and in both cases, he it missed his head. I hit my head, but just not quite hard enough. And neither of us bled out. And actually, I was talking to Ting Wu, George Church's wife, uh-huh. and she was like, have you studied yourself? Like, Because neither of us bled out. We actually, our arteries withstood. You should look and for some allele, right? Well, I was thinking, yeah. So I thought about it. I was like, what if our ancestors were like on a lot of cliff sides? We probably had to figure out how to like hobble our yeah. way through life and yeah. procreate. So I don't know. I don't know. But interestingly, neither of us uh, even like severed the kind of major arteries that would cause that to happen. So uh, That's amazing. So uh, do, you f- do you feel like you are... Uh, fully healed there's no such thing i mean that's the thing you're not there's no such thing it's uh it's definitely not what you know it's it's uh my dad actually was the one who while everyone is like but your dad is fine nobody can tell anything's wrong with your dad he yeah he's that kind of guy where like he'll never tell you but i remember he sat down with me you know when everybody else left the room and he was just like every day for the rest of your life just know it's every day for the rest of your life that's Um, the struggle mm mm-hmm is it? Are you in pain, or just like the struggle to make your body work the way you wanted to? Um, I am always aware of my body, so my body is like constant. The thing, interesting thing, is everybody should everyone. Everyone should be thinking about their body all the time, the comfort of their body, and we don't, which is why we're, a, uh, you know, a generation of kind of anxious and depressed and people with like you know back pain and all sorts of things yeah. is that we're not listening to our body. Well, I think my dad and my body just talk to us all the time. And I don't say it's pain. It's just awareness. And um, 
I've actually, interestingly, through physical therapy, as long as I do every day, I do the kind of stretching I do, and I do a particular modality called the genus of flexibility, which is amazing. I, um, as long as I do it, uh, I don't feel any pain. If I, every once in a while, I get really busy and I slack off for a while, uh, I, I literally can't move. So it's, it's wow. just simple as that. But I think that's okay. I think everybody should actually have to exercise every day. And most people just don't have a body that's telling them, hey, it's time to do something now. Or, but so like you can see even right now, like I kind of am constantly you're like, moving around a bit. If yeah. I could, I would probably, if you don't mind, I would probably just be standing and stretching the entire <laughs> I time. I don't care. And it actually makes my brain work better as yeah. well. And it, it you know, it, yeah, everything you're, that's the interesting thing. So being in, in a city like Boston, which is such a cerebral city, you kind of get a sense of like the brain is everything, right? That's the only thing that's important. Uh, but when you are hospitalized, and I was basically bedridden for four months, um, and you can't move and everything in your body is just like stuck, you realize that without a body, you have no brain. Like yeah. your brain isn't functioning. There's nothing. There's, no, there's nothing stimulated. And so it made me acutely aware that in order for me to do good, the kind of stuff that I value, the good thinking work, I have to invest in my body, like, first and foremost. That is so interesting. The concept, like, if you, if your body isn't working, your brain just begins to... It doesn't almost, work. Yeah, I think shut it, down. And you see it a lot of times in academia. I don't mean to be... But, like, you see people who, they're, like, doing, you know, really hard work all the time, but, like, simple things they're just not conscious of. And it's like, I think you sh- you're shutting down a part of it. You don't realize... Um, You'd actually have a longer, more, um, you know, fulfilling, rewarding, uh, meaningful career in your academia if you actually worked out much. And I, I think it's a real shame that um, academia can be so dismissive of all of that other stuff as frivolous. Where it's, yeah. like, it's not frivolous. It's actually it's critical. Key. Yeah. And it's only um, through destroying your body where you become acutely aware. Like, actually, that's the most important thing you can do. This, this four months where you're bedridden, did they, were you flown home to rehabilitate? Were you in the West Coast all that time? I was in the West Coast the whole time just because of the oh, wow. risk of, uh, throm- like, uh, you know. Uh, thrombosis. Thrombosis. Yeah. So, okay, so you spent, I mean, did your family come out? That's a long time to be by yourself yes. out there. Um, I spent two months in Seattle with my mom. Uh, and, and family came out, but I was, it was basically my poor Your mom, mom and I. Your yeah. yeah, she, yeah. She, was, she was like my rock. She was there always. Um, and then afterwards, um, uh, I um, was able to be transported. With, actually, my, my surgeon, Dr. Fear's body, came with me, and we uh, transported me to um, uh, the Bay Area where my sister lives. Oh, and okay. So my sister's family basically um, uh, outfitted a hospital bed and all the gear in their home, and I basically... Uh, was like stayed there. Wow. Okay. I mean, so, and then finally, f- four and a half, five months later, you're home and you're beginning. You, you're then I went to Spalding. Yeah, and I, d- I was an inpatient in Spalding and uh, worked with them to rehabilitate. So it was like a, the many stage process to. If one more, and then we'll get off this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, like you said, you know, there is no um, fully back. You know, you, mm-hmm. but is there a point where you're like, okay, my mind is not completely focused on uh, healing. We, or were you there like, oh, I didn't even think about my, my body in the, in the negative yeah, way, um, no, you know, all day. I, I, there's definitely, it's, it's not one of these things where it's like a day, it's, it's a gradation, so you don't know exactly when it happens. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, for the first year, I actually was back at work as soon as I came back. But the way I explained it to my lab was like, don't treat me like your boss, just treat me like the new intern that you just sort of help get going, right? And I, I have to be very honest with you. So the way I kind of get through things is um, is uh, by being really 
honest about where I'm at. And uh -huh. so I was told him, I'm like, look, I, I remember with one of my graduate students, he's like, well, are you really going to look at this math? I'm like, no, I don't think so. I'll be honest with you. You should find somebody else who's going to look at it for you because huh. I, don't, I don't have it. I don't have those brain cells. It's not happening. Um, and so I had to kind of really uh, work to be very practical and very realistic about what I could do and what I couldn't do. And I'm very grateful to having an amazing lab that is very resilient. Yeah. Um, and ha we had a lot of organizational resilience built in. Um, and they were able to keep things going. So I read um, someplace this quote you said uh, that after the accident, um, you found that you were sort of more empathetic. Yeah? Yeah. And I have to say, you already seem like an empathetic person. I mean, if you're writing songs, and, you know, mm -hmm. the Netta I thought was a pretty empathetic song. Mm -hmm. um, are there, like, like gradients of empathy? Do you actually still feel more empathetic now than oh, you were before? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, There's, like, the fragility of life or something? Yeah. It, it, you know, the funny thing is I'm one of those people that's very, like, empathetic in the— I, th I think that I've always been in this place where I've been empathetic to, like, the greater cause, yeah. you know? But I, I, but you know, my brain is like I'm such an I'm such a like logical kind of nerdy kind of person that I just wouldn't pick up on like simple things of like something in the word uh, of what you said tells me like hey something's deeper going on. So it, it was um, I guess I would say I'm I've I've always been a bit of an oblivious person. I'm just uh -huh. like kind of like data geek that yeah. kind of misses things, and um, and now I just pick up on that you know where I can kind of see like people's hurt. Um, oh. And, and it, it is. So the way I talk about it is that this idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is got to be gotten rid of. It, it's terrible. I mean, the fact of the matter is you take these people whose entire lives have been turned upside down, who feel like they can't do anything, and you're like, oh, if I don't make this better than it was before, then I'm not worth it. Like, why, why did you just make the bar higher? Like, just what if I just am normal? Wouldn't that be a huge accomplishment? So it, it just makes everybody feel better, right? Or the kind of thing of, like, everything happens for a reason. You're just saying that to make yourself feel better or somehow, but, like, it's just not true, right? Yeah. So you don't want to be Pollyannish about it. You don't want to say, like, oh, this is great or any of that kind of stuff. So you don't, you don't get more. My body will never be what it, it was and it, what it could have been and all of that. Like, I've lost a lot. I've got tons of metal in my knees that impact my ability. Even if I started running, it would start, you know, grading. Grip, and yeah. A million things wrong with that. Um, but... If you commit yourself, and it's something you have to do, to kind of taking the garbage that life has given you and you know, composting that to something, it can be catalytic to something good. And, um, and the, the kind of biggest things it gives you is it gives you empathy and perspective. So I say I have empathy superpowers. I see things that other people don't see um, because of it and that I didn't see before um, because I can kind of see – I can feel my body. I can feel other people's bodies. I can see th things about, like, and I, and still, uh, like, I definitely could do more. And I, I found in my life, like, there are times I could have done more. And I'm still learning. And I, uh, the other thing that I think it, that's been good about it is it makes me want to continue to get better and better. So the person who developed the modality that helps me is somebody named Bob Cooley. Uh -huh. And he developed the genius of flexibility. And he did so when he was hit by a car as a pedestrian going 70 miles an hour. His friend died. He destroyed his body, and he has been on this recovery mission, and he's developed this entire system that is just amazing. But what's fascinating about it is that I've known him now for many years, and he gets smarter every year. Huh. And he's 70 years old, and he rollerblades around the city, and he was hit by a car going 70 miles an hour. Um, everyone should aspire to that kind of level of function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, like, I see him get smarter and better and healthier every year. And it's really neat. So he kind of 
you know, calls it a form of uh, sort of his idea is this idea that bo the body is medicine, because the body can heal itself, and if we feed the body, the body will learn how to heal itself. And, uh, and this kind of regenerative biology within ourselves, and I love it. Like, I, I'm a doctor, and, you know, MD by training, uh -huh. But um, but I definitely think anytime nature can take over, it should. Yeah. You know, we it really should be that we go to medicines as a last stop, catastrophic events or wherever. But uh, so I don't. I will use medicine, and others should use medicine when needed. Yeah. But like, I'm very glad that I dropped the pain pills right away. I, I, I oh yeah. People who need yeah. it, but I but it's yeah. not a place to live if you yeah. can. Yeah. Um, and so we should we should always treat it as a last resort and ideally temporary. Um, we should try to help people have their bodies help them as much as possible. And when that's not a solution, that's when you go to something else. Yeah. Thank you. It was really good. Oh, okay. okay. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, that's the end of your First Rounders podcast with Pardis Sabeti. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I thought about this conversation long after I'd flown back to New York. Um, so thank you, Pardis, for a great interview. Thanks for your candor. Our archives... Uh, as I mentioned, Bob Langer is in there. Rachel Horwitz, CEO of Caribou, is in there. Uh, Jim Wilson, gene therapy pioneer, he's in there. And many more. Those are in our archives. Those are all free. You can find them off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can reach us there to talk about our journal, to talk about this podcast, to talk about anything else that we do. I will put some information up in our bioengineering community page about some more information. I'll collect some information about parties. Um, there's lots of content in there that is also all free. Uh, the address is bioengineeringcommunity.nature.com. Midwest Quiet, can you hear me? Thank you for the use of your music in this podcast. Anything else? No, uh, that's it. I'm out of things to say. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.